0: With the ever-growing debate about climate change, our new administration is definitely spending more money than probably any other administration will ever spend to try and combat the so-called climate change, global warming, whatever they want to change the narrative to. So we're going to dig through a couple things and uh, let's see if we can kind of balance out this debate a little bit because it's not one side or the other. It's probably more something in the middle. Let's get right to it. All right. Hello, everyone. Let's dig into this climate change thing again. Once again, this is the Nielsen Show, and we're going to start off here with an article from the NBC News that claims that climate change awareness takes hold at the state level. Uh, it starts off at a, mod- a majority of Americans, 57%, said they believe that human activities were mostly responsible for global warming, a nine-point shift since 2014. Um, yeah, cause, I mean, realistically, if you keep pushing the narrative that this is happening, uh, eventually you're going to get more and more people believing it because everybody's saying it, right? And that's how news kind of goes, just push the same narrative as long as you can, and eventually everybody's going to buy into it. So, if 57% of this is just a U.S. poll here, and, you know, it's also coming from uh, NBC News and CNBC, so, I mean, you can take that as you want. Uh, They debate about it, about what it's, you know, causes and effect. Um, But there's also an article from National Geographic. Now, this one was pretty interesting because there's a thing people got to understand is that scientists are always changing their mind because they, they think they're certain on something. But then some new evidence comes along and changes the trajectory of what they originally thought was true. So that's something we always got to keep in mind, especially with climate change, because it's always changing and it's always throwing curveballs. And our little speck of time on this earth is only a small little portion of what this climate is going to do in another hundred years, whether we're here or not. I think there's what two different volcanoes going off right now. You got one up in uh, I think it's Iceland, and another one down, I forget the name of the island, down somewhere uh, in the Caribbean, you know, spewing out all kinds of gases and ash and, you know, tons of just bad gases into the air. I mean, there's always, I mean, granted, cars do put out pollution. I mean, that's not really a debated fact. They just do. But is it really doing as much warming as everybody thinks it is? But anyways, this this article from National Geographic says, Forest gardens show how native land stewardship can outdo nature. Article goes on. For hundreds of years, indigenous communities in what is now British Columbia cleared small patches amid dense conifer forest. They planted and tended food and medicine bearing trees and plants, sometimes including species from hundreds of miles away, to a yield a bounty of nuts, fruits, and berries. A wave of European disease devastated indigenous communities in the late 1700s. And in the 1800s, colonizers displaced the indigenous people and seized the land. The lush, diverse forest gardens were abandoned and forgotten. A few years ago, che- Chelsea Geralda Armstrong, An ethnobotanist ethnobotanist, at Simon Fraser University was invited by First Nation elders to investigate why hazelnut trees were growing at abandoned village sites near the coast. The plants were far from their native habitat in the dry interior and seemingly seemingly lost among towering cedars and hemlocks. Armstrong began to suspect she was studying human-created ecosystems and they were thriving, even with no one caring for them. She brought her suspicions to community elders, who confirmed them by sharing memories of ancestors cultivating edible and medicinal plants. Armstrong gathered colleagues to study these ancient gardens ecology. In a paper published this week in the journal Ecology and Society, the team reports a striking finding. After more than a century on their own, indigenous-created forest gardens of the Pacific Northwest support more pollinators, more seed-eating animals, and more plant species than the supposedly natural conifer forests surrounding them. When we look at forest gardens, they're actually enhancing what nature does, making it much more resilient, much more biodiverse, and oh yeah, they feed people too, says Armstrong. The paper may be the first to quantify how indigenous land stewardship can enhance what ecologists call functional diversity, a measure of how many goods an ecosystem provides. It joins a growing scientific literature revealing that indigenous people, both historically and today, often outperform government agencies and conservation organizations at supporting biodiversity, sequestering carbon, and generating other ecological benefits on their land, Leaving nature alone is not always the right course. Scientists are finding, and the original land stewards often do it best. This is, of course, a claim that indigenous groups have long made. Western scientists, by contrast, have often written native people out of forests and other ecosystems they helped create. An increasing number of scientists are now questioning this practice, and in the process, forcing ecology and conservation to undergo what some uh, would say is a long overdue reckoning. Western science far for too long has embraced the idea of primordial wilderness, says Jesse Miller, an ecologist at Stanford and Armstrong's co-author. We're seeing this paradigm shift to recognizing how much of what was thought as a primordial wilderness were actually landscapes shaped by humans. Getting people to listen. The forest gardens Armstrong studied once supplied indigenous villages with food and medicine. Including plants that had been imported from elsewhere. Historically, it was really important to have all the resources here, says Willie Charlie, a former chief and current employee at the Sintals Nation. I'm not sure I butchered that. I don't know. S T to... S apostrophe A I L E S <laughs> of the Coast Salish people. If you had all that in your family, you were pretty self sustaining. Armstrong and her team studied 12 forest gardens in southern and central British Columbia between 100 square meters, roughly 1,100 square feet, about half a tennis court to a square kilometer, the size of a very small town. The gardens are open, sunny patches within dense, shady conifer forests, thick with deciduous trees and shrubs. The researchers laid out rectangular plots in the gardens and adjacent forests. They counted the number of plant species, and recorded how they are pollinated and what kinds of seeds they produce, among other factors. Compared to forest plots, gardens had roughly 1.3 times as many total plant species and 1.5 times as many plants with seeds spread by animals. Species in the gardens produced seeds that were on average twice as large as those in forest plots, making the gardens far better at feeding animals, a measure of functional diversity. Hazelnuts, fruit-bearing shrubs such as cranberry and elderberry, and edible understory plants like wild ginger and northern rice, root were all more common in gardens than in surrounding forests, which were dominated by conifers that produced fewer foods for humans or animals. Functional diversity is kind of a hot topic in ecology, says Miller. Many ecologists see it as a better measure of an ecosystem's health and resilience than the simple species counts that go into conventional biodiversity metrics. That resilience may be why the forest gardens have survived so long without maintenance, Miller and Armstrong suspect. The wonky-sounding metric also seemed to measure something of importance to the indigenous people whose land the gardens sit on. Elders told Armstrong that it made sense gardens were found to support more animals than surrounding forests because the elders knew the gardens were the best places to hunt due to the abundance of game. The study shows that it's really critical to have people as part of the ecology, says Tony Marks Block, an anthropologist at California State University, East Bay, who was not part of the study. Excluding people from the land is not actually restoring the land. Armstrong says publication of the study is only a first step toward helping First Nations revitalize their plant-based cultures. The goal is to apply what we learn to bringing these gardens back By helping indigenous communities use them again, she says. Old people, oh, whoops, I missed a part. To that end, Charlie is working to create trails to the gardens and to get village members, especially young ones, to use and maintain them again. He says that studies like Armstrong's can help with that. Quote, old people don't believe something until somebody tells them. He says, quote, young people don't believe something until it's in writing. A bias towards pristine nature. The disconnect between indigenous knowledge and Western science has deep roots. By the time ecology became organized as a scientific discipline in the early 1900s, European colonizers had displaced indigenous groups throughout much of the world. So the landscapes that scientists interpreted as natural or pristine often, in fact, once had human residents who carefully managed them. Erasing indigenous land stewardships also fed into a fortress conservation model under which removing people from an area was seen as essential to conserving it. A prominent example is Yosemite National Park, whose development included the eviction of Native people. In the conservation movement, we're so used to thinking about anthropogenic as a synonym for bad, Miller says, we often ignore Native American land management. In the 1960s and 1970s, as indigenous groups in the United States and elsewhere gradually gained self-determination many of them asserted that they had rights to man- manage the land they had once owned re- according to, d- to traditional practices that often collided with both government policies and the scientific establishment for example supposedly science-backed fire suppression policies made it nearly impossible for indigenous communities to burn land for ecological and cultural benefits when ecologist and Patawatomi Na- Nation member Robin Wall Kimmerer arrived at the State of University of New York College of Environmental Science and Forestry in the 1970s to study botany. As she recounts in her 2013 book, Braiding Sweetgrass, she encountered an academic establishment ill-prepared to consider traditional ecological, ecological knowledge or beneficial interactions between humans and other species. Quote, Eco- ecologists wanted to study natural systems, which they defined as absent of people, so they would try to seek out places where people weren't, says Don Waller, a retired ecology professor at the University of Madison, Wisconsin, who was also starting his career at that time. But discoveries revealing that the supposedly pristine Amazon rainforest had actually been profoundly shaped by people who... For thousands of years began to change researchers' minds. More recently, the United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization surveyed more than 300 previous studies and found that areas in Latin America occupied by indigenous people had lower deforestation rates and higher carbon stores than other places, including government-protected areas. A 2019 study found that indigenous lands in Australia, Brazil, and Canada had comparable vertebrae that biodiversity to government-protected areas. And just this week, researchers reported that indigenous people inhabited and shaped three-quarters of Earth's land for thousands of years, but that biodiversity loss accelerated only with global colonization. In the 1980s, Waller became aware of an exceptional forest belonging to the Menominee Nation of northeastern Wisconsin a mostly rectangular, 365-square-mile forest, so dense and green that it pops out from the surrounding landscape in satellite images. Since the 1800s, the tribe has harvested wood only as fast as their forest can regrow. In 1992, it became the first in the U.S. certified as sustainable. With permission, Waller began collecting ecological data from the reservation and other forests around the state. In a 2018 study, he and co-author reported that Wisconsin forests Owned and stewarded by the Menominee Manomi, Mano, and o, Ojibwe, man, I'm butchering this. Sorry about that. Perform as well or better than any others in Wisconsin, including forest service and park service-owned forests, on five different metrics of forest volume and health. Those include number of tree seedlings, understory plant diversity, and deer populations closer to historical baselines. Uh, that's also, you know, part of my problem with a lot of these, um, I don't know what you'd call them. I mean, <laughs> the typical redneck term is tree huggers, but you know, and they're, they're good intentions, you know, cause they're just not looking at all the different aspects of what goes on with nature. Not all of it is just natural. That's typically what we've been seeing with letting places just naturally go and not having any kind of human intervention. And that to me is a lot of what I see with a lot of these wildfires we've got. Uh, you, if you don't go in and manage forests, take out deadfall, uh, you know, cut out trees, when they're stacked in there like toothpicks in a box, they actually kill each other off. And a lot of places, especially here in the West, we're starting to see a lot of that bark beetle. And it kills a lot of these pine trees as well. So in these dense forests and these pine beetles start getting in there, they kill all these trees and you can see them all over the West where they've decimated, you know, thousands hundreds of thousands of acres of these pine trees they're just matchsticks up in the air right now so and this has all been you know the last 50 years probably of just minimizing uh logging companies coming in you know because this can all be managed between government and private you know businesses They can go in forest service and go in and say, hey, okay, to make this better here, we need to have you guys come in, cut all these trees here out that we've marked. Uh, We'll replant sporadically in between. Once you guys are done, they'll kind of regrow and then you you move around. You know, that's the whole point of like farming too. Like you move crops around and then they do certain things to certain plots of land to keep the dirt fertile. So you can keep growing on it. So, anyways, this story goes on. The value of putting things in writing. A new generation of ecologists and anthropologists is increasingly asking similar questions, not just about how humans might harm ecosystems, but also how about about how people can enhance them. A few years ago, Mark's Block collaborated with indigenous forest scientists. Frank Lake of the U.S. Forest Service to study the impact of fire by the Uruk and Karuk tribes of Northern California on hazelnut, an important species for both food and basketry. In February, the team reported that compared to not burning, traditional fire practices produced 13 times more hazelnut stems that basket makers could use and decreased the distance they needed to travel to gather stems by nearly a factor of four. Beyond hazelnut, native people of the area used fire to manage a a sophisticated rotation of oak trees, burning at the right time to kill insects that might otherwise cause acorns to spoil and become inedible, says Bill Tripp, director of natural resources for the Carrick tribe. Since fire was suppressed in the late 1800s, most oak savannas have been taken over by conifers like Douglas fir, making the overall landscape both less diverse and less edible. Outcomes of scientific studies, such as Marx blocks, often affirm what native people already know from tradition and experience, but that doesn't mean the studies aren't useful, Tripp says. We knew what the outcome was going to be, he says, but nobody listens if it isn't written down like that. Being able to cite scientific literature may be especially important as indigenous groups push for more rights, especially on settled territories they still claim but no longer own. For example, Carricks want more burning rights on Forest Service land, while neighboring Yorks are pushing to co manage and conduct controlled burns in Redwood National Park. With Deb Holland recently confirmed as the first Native Interior Secretary, many tribal leaders are cautiously optimistic that the time for such change has arrived. In other cases, however, government policy continues to diverge from both indigenous knowledge and science. This spring, for example, the state of Wisconsin authorized a wolf hunt that both scientists and tribes had protested. People outside the tribal community tend to think a lot of our positions are culturally based, but I would argue they tend to align much more with science than the non-tribal worldview, says Peter David, a wildlife biologist for the Greater Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission, which represents 11 Midwestern Ojibwe tribes. Once again, probably butchered that. The tribal worldview says wolves ought to be able to establish their own population levels, and they do that at very low levels. It aligns much better with the science. Despite an increasing convergence between science and indigenous knowledge, the academy still has work to do, too, says Waller. I would like to see forestry schools routinely sending forestry students, for example, to Menominee Tribal Enterprises, he says. I would like to see ecologists have an option to take an ethnobotany or traditional ecological knowledge course. And that concludes that interesting article. And I'll come back with one other little thing here in just a second. All right, we're back. Here's the next article I would like to uh, go over. It's from CNS News. Global Warming question mark temperature up very close to zero over 15 years uh this was from 2013 in a june 20 interview with spiegel online german client scientist hans von storch said that despite predictions of a warming planet the temperature data for the past 15 years shows an increase of 0.06 or quote very close to zero That hasn't happened, Storch said. In fact, the increase over the last 15 years was just 0.06 degrees Celsius, 0.11 degrees Fahrenheit, a value very close to zero. Spiegel asked Storch why the Earth's temperature has not risen significantly in the past 15 years despite 400 billion metric tons of carbon dioxide being emitted into the atmosphere from human activities. So far, no one has been able to provide a compelling answer to why climate change seems to be taking a break, said Storch, a professor at the Meteorological Institute of the University of Hamburg and director of the Institute for Coastal Research at the Hemholtz Research Center in Gostach, Germany. I guess I said that right. I don't know. (laughs) Here we go, (laughs) redneck. Quote, we're facing a puzzle, Storch said. Recently, CO2 emissions have actually risen even more steeply than we feared. As a result, according to most climate models, we should have seen temperatures rise around 0.25 degrees Celsius over the past 10 years, or 0.45 degrees Fahrenheit over the past 10 years, he added. That hasn't happened, Storch said. In fact, the increase over the last 15 years was just 0.06 degrees, or 0.11 degrees Fahrenheit, a value very close to zero. Storch said the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change would have to address these facts in its next climate assessment report due out late next year. The interview includes this exchange about what this 15-year data showing virtually no rise in the Earth's temperature means going forward. Spiegel, do the computer models with which physicists simulate the future climate ever show the sort of long standstill in temperature change that we're observing right now? Storch. Okay, so this must be a back and forth question answer thing. Yes, but an extremely, uh, only extremely rarely. At my institute, we analyzed how often such a 15-year stagnation in global warming occurred in the simulations. The answer, answer was, in under 2% of all the times we ran the simulation, in other words, over 98% of forecasts show CO2 emissions as high as we have had in recent years, leading to more of a temperature increase. Spiegel. How long will it still be possible to reconcile such a pause in global warming with established climate forecasts? Storch. If things continue as they have been in five years at the latest, we will need to acknowledge that something is fundamentally wrong with our climate models. A 20-year pause in global warming does not occur in a single modeled scenario, but even today we are finding it very difficult to reconcile actual temperature. Oh, what the heck in there? Something just moved here on me. Uh, Hist- okay. In the interview, Storch also addressed the hysteria over global warming by some advocates. Would you say that people no longer reflexively attribute every severe weather event to global warming as much as they once did? The interviewer asked. Yes, my impression is that there is less hysteria over the climate, Storch said. There are certainly still people who almost ritualistically cry, stop, thief, climate change is at fault over any natural disaster. Well, if this was written in 2013, not a whole lot's changed there, uh, especially in the media. But people are now talking much more about likely causes of flooding, such as land being paved over or the disappearance of natural flood zones. And that's a good thing, Storch said. Storch, however, did not dismiss global warming completely when asked if changes in how scientists measure and predict the Earth's climate will throw the whole concept into doubt. I don't believe so, Storch said. We still have compelling evidence of a man-made greenhouse effect. There is very little doubt about it. But if global warming continues to stagnate, doubts will obviously grow stronger. <laughs> well, wow, that, was, that was prophetic. Uh, so basically, they're just saying that, you know the science really isn't settled because they're starting to see things that they couldn't really predict would happen. I mean, like I said, if, if you're putting that much more, you know, billion metric tons of carbon dioxide into the Earth's atmosphere, by all their accounts, we should be seeing temperatures rising uh, at, a, at a pretty steady pace, I would think. But then all of a sudden, you know, there's a pause Now, my thoughts about that are, is nature. Now, trees can react, I think, depending on how much uh, carbon is being put into the atmosphere. That they will possibly, because there was another NASA study that was showing that even though we're emitting more uh, carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, that the Earth was actually getting greener. Because I think more of these trees and stuff are absorbing more of this carbon dioxide. That's just my thoughts, I and mean, you know, I'm obviously not a scientist, so uh, what do I know? But if if that's the case, then that's kind of what we're looking at—natural things happening. So, I mean, realistically, we could we can still look at ways to obviously. You know, try and offset how much carbon dioxide we're putting into the the air. Mainly for what we have to breathe as humans. I don't think, like I say, I've I've probably said this before. I don't think it matters what we do on our end quite as much. You know, people that think that we're destroying the earth. Um, It's more the other way around because... We destroy our climate that we need. We need more of a climate to survive than the plants and animals and stuff like that do. I mean, yeah, you see with technology, you know, stuff that's probably happened for millions of years, you know, but we can now capture it on our phones and instantly put it out on the web. And it's more instantaneously accessed from places all around the world. So to us, it seems like all these things are happening so much faster, even though they're probably realistically happening at about the same speed they've always been happening. Wells coming up board, up onto the beaches. You know, they still don't know why they do that, uh, and they can—they've done that ever since I was a kid, since I can remember. You know, seeing on the news, oh, here on such and such coastline, you know, three or four wells beach themselves, and nobody knows why. You know, I don't know if that's a, a phenomenon. You know, some animals, when they're getting ready to die, they go hide. And I don't know if that would be something, like, whales would do. Like, they beach themselves, get themselves out of the water to die. I don't know. But, with this whole government push, I mean, I don't know if anybody remembers when uh, Solynder got hundreds of millions of dollars. And uh, we, the taxpayers, didn't get one solar panel out of it. Company went bankrupt. Uh, money disappeared. And I never heard a story or anybody wanting to follow up where that money might have went. And that's part of the problem with a lot of this technology we have. Granted, we need to be able to put you know some kind of money into our universities and stuff to be able to work on technology that I guess isn't going to be reliant on uh, coal and fossil fuels. Because we know if we keep going at the rate we're going, we're just going to eventually run out of these resources. I mean, you know, probably not for the next 100 200 years, but in another 100 or 200 years, we need to have technology to start taking over for the losses of those resources now what that's going to end up being i don't know because a lot of even if you think about uh computer chips i mean if if you want to just look up the amount of things that are actually made from the petroleum industry um it's pretty it's pretty ecstatic but we still need to figure out a balance that's that's the problem it's either one side's oh we're we're gonna burn up and Global warming, climate change, look at, I mean, look at this, look at this tornado, that's proof. It's like, that's not proof, tornadoes has been happening forever. Oh, well, the intensity, no, intensity's is not really any worse either. I mean, you're just looking at different ways that weather has come together right in front of your eyes and trying to put something to it that's not really there. Hurricanes, hurricanes happen, we get about the same amount of them every year. Uh, they want to keep saying, "Oh, they're increasing in intensity," um, but if you really look back, that's really not much of the case. So I don't know what the answer is. I mean, there's it's not one side or the other. We need to find somewhere in the middle. Um, personally, right now, I think that we there has been technologies out there that people of in the private sector have come up with, you know, even just private individuals, just thinking, Hey, you know, how can I, how can I save money on my, my automobile gas? So they start tinkering around in the garage with their engines and come up with ways that get burned super efficient or use even just vapor gas vapor to run their engines instead of, you know, shooting liquid gasoline into the cylinders and get a lot better fuel mileage but they just these ideas get squashed because the petroleum industry they like to make those billions of dollars every quarter you know in profits because we're using tons of fuel so if people would look more to logical explanation We can clean up our air if we're getting better fuel mileage. We can save a ton of money in our pockets to go towards a lot of other things versus, you know, just trying to survive. You know, when the fuel prices get so high because of regulations, it's not going to help us by still getting the same crappy fuel mileage. You know, we could offset it if we're getting better fuel mileage, but the price of fuel is going up. We can combat it a little bit by helping clean our air and help clean uh all the environment up. Uh but we got to all get on board with something. So I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I don't, you know, I'm not a scientist. I'm just trying to look at all the different aspects of different things, you know. I don't think putting super inefficient solar panels all over the place to try and offset uh, carbon emissions is the right answer either. All you're doing is trading one pollution for another, uh, which is way less efficient. More, you got to put up so many more solar panels to get roughly the same amount of power out of smaller. I mean, we've got we've got a lot of natural gas. I mean, one another thing that will eventually run out. You know, hundreds of years down the road, but nobody wants to put start building those either we have we have one here in in utah that seems to work pretty good i don't know where its power goes to but uh it's uh, other than it being noisy <laughs> and you hear it when it's got to blow off steam or whatever every now and then but uh it just that's pretty much most of its uh emission is just steam that's you know from the water that's cooling down the turbines so yeah, if we want to get off coal, uh, we need to start figuring out a way that we can do it without just totally killing the economy and the coal industry. Because the problem is, it's it's here in the U.S. and other other countries that are actually trying to do something about it. Uh, but if China is still developing, they're still buying a ton of coal from the U.S. because you know our government is basically starting to outlaw a lot of these coal plants and they're shutting down and decommissioning them and you know these miners and stuff they're still trying to make a living so these coal companies are shipping it overseas because they will still burn the crap out of it because their governments don't care they're looking at trying to develop and become a world you know the the, one of the superpowers And they know the cheapest way to do that is to burn coal because they can get it cheaper than any other uh, resource. So really, if that's the case, everything we're doing here is just costing us our livelihoods and we're just trading it to another country that's just burning two and three times more of it than we ever did to run their economy. So what are we really doing to combat climate change if all we're doing is just changing where this uh, pollution is coming from? <laughs> but I don't know. I don't know what the one solution there. You know, there's not a one solution fits all to address this issue. But I don't know if uh, really spending trillions and trillions of dollars on all these supposed green energy projects you know like even these pipelines it's a stupid political ploy you got a pipeline that is uh, going down the same right away as an existing pipeline and we're getting all these you know activists out there protesting them you know and I okay I, I kind of get it because they're trying to double the output of oil they're bringing in from Canada to our refineries so I mean as far as a a climate change activist goes. I can see where they're throwing a fit about it because, oh, more oil means more gas, more pollution, blah, 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 you know, down the road. but uh, They're just, if it's not coming to us, it's going to someone else. The industry is going to sell it to somebody and somebody else is going to burn it. So while we're trying to figure out a new source of energy, we might as well use what we can get for cheap, you know, cheap energy and work on using that extra profits to go towards some of these green energy projects and get them efficient because you're not really doing any good long term by, you know, they were celebrating solar panels coming out with a 26% efficiency. Now, I'm not some mathematician, but 26% efficiency is pretty crappy. Uh, you know, I mean, if it was closer to 50% efficiency, it's a little that's looking a little bit more on the upside, but 26%. And then that, you know, in solar panels, that energy depletes over the first five years and then beyond. You start getting less and less efficiency. And then eventually you've got to take those panels off and replace them And then where do all them panels go? Where's all the materials from them panels go? And that's going to be the secondary problem we're going to see with all this, air quotes, green energy, is we're going to create a secondary pollution from these unless unless these things can be built fully 100% recyclable materials that can all be reused. It's not really green like everybody keeps trying to tell themselves. Same thing with the solar panel, or not the solar panels, but the windmills. The the wings on those things only last so long. They require lubrication inside from oil products and everything that they're basically made of. They're super expensive from everything I've read to try and maintain. And you end up with the same problem. You're creating a secondary pollution problem because they don't have, as far as I've heard, they don't have a way to recycle what those uh, big fins are made out of. And I've read stories where they've been taking them and just digging huge landfills, laying them down in there and covering them with dirt. (laughs) Out of sight, out of mind, right? That's green for you. So, I don't know they've they've got some other uh, offshore things as well. There's uh, an article here about an orbital or two that they're uh, shipping somewhere over to Scotland or somewhere in the to put in the ocean that will use the uh, uh, what they call the wave the waves coming in, the tidal wave to propel these uh, turbines. And it's connected in, or well it says, once it's connected to the European Marine Energy Center off the Orkney Islands, the 2MW Orbital O2 will generate enough energy to power at least 2,000 homes in the UK per year. Uh, I'm not sure how many homes are in the UK, but I'm assuming there's a lot more than 2,000. Uh, So it it says it's making it one of the world's most powerful tidal turbines. There's the word I was looking for currently in use and offset about 2,200 tons of carbon dioxide emissions per year. So if we're here in the U.S., um, I'm guessing that was just from the U.S. dumping out 400 million tons of carbon dioxide emissions per year, 2,200 tons times whatever how many of these things do you got to now plant in the ocean to offset all that energy there so that's kind of where I'm coming from it's like we're we're trying to use inefficient products to offset places that we could make more efficient and it doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to spend trillions of dollars on stuff that doesn't work. Like I say, research and development does cost money and we should dump some money into it. But a lot of times, you know, our colleges and their uh different science programs, different things like that. I mean, we already subsidize most of these colleges anyways. Why aren't we getting, you know, more out of these schools that should be kind of studying, you know, how can we do this or this versus it just being one sided? Oh, how do we develop solar panels? How do we develop, you know, all this green stuff instead of trying to help develop what we are, the technology we already have and making it better and then worry about the other stuff so we can kind of make a full 360 eventually, or at least a, a 180 to the middle And then we can start, you know, diversifying from there. But it's always an extreme one side or the other. And it seems to do that every four years now with the different administration. And it's almost like it's become a competition. (laughs) But anyways, that was kind of my thoughts on all this stuff. And I started reading a couple of these articles and just, it's like, just bringing up. Bringing up the thinking juices, it's like, all right, we we're we keep doing the same thing over and over and it never seems to work out for anybody. So anyways, you know, maybe we need to just step back and go back to before the scientists thought they knew better than the uh, the native tribes and maybe start listening to a little bit of what they're trying to tell us. And what a lot of us have been saying for a while now is you can't just not maintain our forests. And make them the natural for us, because that it happens with animals as well. If we didn't hunt certain animals, they overpopulate certain areas. They get diseases, they get sick, and then before long, they end up you know wiping out way more than hunters even hunt. Uh, wipes out whole entire species sometimes. So there needs to be a balance, and I think the Indians back in the day knew that probably the best. But, you know, we've done the, you know, pushed them off to the side. We know better things. We have scientists that have studied this and that. And we have computer models that are telling us this. Even if they're, they're not right, we're still going with it. We're not changing course to adapt to what's actually happening. And I think that's the worst thing. See, we take these technological terms and we don't put into the equation adapting to climate change because everything we do is going to affect the climate. Uh, if you don't really understand that part of what I'm trying to say is we have roads, we have them out of asphalt, we have them out of concrete, we have buildings, we have, you know, homes, all these things will absorb heat. And then you're going to get a higher, uh, temperature on the earth's surface we also put in pipelines to drain water out of certain areas to keep flood areas dry Uh, we redirect water from all sorts of sources that were natural areas but we don't ever adapt to these changing conditions here in utah we had the bonneville you know salt flats that used to be you know a ginormous lake that covered a good portion of the northern part of Utah out into Nevada. I mean, there was there was lakes inland that didn't have really enough offset of mountain snow to keep them filled up, and that's just climate, you know, so... We're not adapting to these lakes drying down, which, you know, the Great Salt Lake someday may not really be there at all because we're growing so much here in the valley, sucking so much more of that water up in uh, our consumption into, you know, irrigation lines for fields, all the different places uh, that water typically would bypass go to our lakes. rivers and feed these inland lakes that don't drain anywhere they stay right here so if they're still getting drier and drier uh, we are consuming more and more of the moisture that's coming to our mountains in the form of drinking water but we don't adapt to our own you know growth So that's one thing to think about is just ways that we can adapt to our climate change which is changing all the time but we don't adapt to the things that we are doing to cause it possibly to do other things that we didn't think as normal natural effects. So anyways, that's all I got for today folks. I hope you join me again on the next one. Uh, I do have an email if you'd like to send something out you know, correct me where I'm wrong, especially, uh, let's say I always try and get these things, you know, as, as, as truthful as I can say, truthful is it from my perspective. And it's the Nielsen show 2021 at outlook.com. Um, uh, other than that, I don't know. I think that's about all I got. So hope you guys join me again on the next one and we'll catch you then. Thanks for listening.